Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anu Arafat, Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Hi, guys. Now, today's episode is the first of a two-parter, possibly a three-parter. I don't know, Naomi, I've got loads and loads of notes, <laughs> so we're going to have to see how much airtime this one sp- takes up, because um, I have a lot to say on it. Yes. And we are going to be talking about the Irish War of Independence. Mm. That is the guerrilla war that was waged between the rebel Irish government and British authorities between 1919 and 1921. In this episode, we're going to look at the background of the war and particularly at the institution that would lead Ireland's popular overthrow of British rule, Dáil Éireann. Brilliant. So, Tim, you know, I'm actually really glad that we're devoting a good bit of time to this because the events of this period often go quite a long way in explaining how the Irish state took shape and the Mm. way it would think about itself in the decades afterwards. And what's really striking about this war, I think, is almost the sense of inevitability that surrounds it. Um, you know, this is a point in history where Ireland was finally going to break free from British rule for good. And it seemed like no matter what happened, nothing was going to change that. Yeah, right. I, I completely agree. Yeah, I think it's it's almost kind of palpable, actually, when you're looking at this history. Um, there's this feeling that people in Ireland had, you know, they'd already been thinking about themselves as independent from Britain for ages already. You know, if you think about it, by 1919, nationalist politics had already dominated Ireland's politics for generations already. Mm. Um, At this stage, the Home Rule movement, which agitated for self-government within the UK, that was already half a century old in 1919. That movement had started back in the 1870s. And for decades, you know, during that time, people had expected some kind of self-government to become Mm. a reality at any moment. So, you know, this was, this was not, you know, coming out of the blue by any means. I see. And of course, that that home rule movement was itself built on a much older political goal, which was the repeal of the Act of Union. The Act, of course, which had inducted Ireland into the UK back in 1801. And on top of that, the old Republican tradition of 1798 had also been revived in recent years, with a violent rebellion breaking out in Dublin in Easter 1916 to proclaim an Irish Republic. Yeah, and the rising, in turn, was built on decades of Gaelic revival, where Irish people had created a whole network of clubs, organisations, art, literature, celebrating Ireland's Gaelic culture and reinforcing it in people's minds every day that went by as a distinct nation unto itself, which had been hollowed out by British colonialism. So it's fair to say by 1919, uh, the foundations for independence had been well and truly laid. Uh, For many people in Ireland, it was now a question of how and when the independent nation would be established on a practical level. So, Tim, let's set the scene here. The Irish War of Independence is, you could say, inseparable from the Easter Rebellion that threw Ireland into chaos a few years previously. Yeah, so if you've listened to our episode on the 1916 Rising, uh, you'll know that Dublin erupted into insurrection in that year. Uh, Republican rebels occupied the city centre, they held out against the British army for about a week, and during that time they publicly proclaimed Irish independence outside the GPO, or General Post Office, Mm. in Dublin. While that rebellion ultimately failed, its enduring consequence was a complete transformation of Ireland's political landscape. Right. Ireland had been dominated by nationalist politics for ages, as we said. But until now, the most prominent and ostensibly feasible form of that nationalism came in the form of home rule within the UK. The Easter Rebellion was actually highly unpopular in much of the country initially because people believed it might actually hurt Ireland's chances of getting granted home rule from the British Parliament. But at the same time, the rebellion planted an idea in the minds of these people who had been disappointed over and over again by Westminster's failure to deliver home rule. You know, an Irish republic wouldn't have to beg or bargain with Westminster for things like home rule, and nor would it have to settle for any form of limited self-government designed in England. 
Instead, Ireland could assert itself as a modern European nation on its own terms, with neither monarchy nor aristocracy, and where Irish people would decide their own destiny. It was the kind of idea that in this moment of global change and nation building was extremely appealing. And I have to say it was really fueled by the reaction against the violence of the British crackdown on the 1916 rebellion. That was it was also fueled by this counter reaction against that. Yeah, it was almost as if, in a way, the British government wanted to kindle these ideas. You know, uh, uh, when you look at what it did, it set about on this course of action that rendered the Irish public increasingly sympathetic to the rebels that they had initially denounced in large numbers. Notoriously, the captured rebel leaders of 1916 were executed over the course of several days. This allowed plenty of time for the public to start thinking of them as romantic heroes rather than criminals. Um, You know, there are details like, you know, the memorabilia beginning to be sold about them, pictures and so on. And the the sort of drip by drip executions allowed this kind of momentum of outrage to be built. Um, It became so loud that the British courts actually put a stop to the executions, realising that they were feeding this growing fire of Republican sympathy. Within a matter of weeks or months, the mood of the country had completely changed, popular support was falling away from home rule every day and instead was mounting behind this idea espoused by the young idealists who had led the Easter Rising, which was republicanism. Okay, so meanwhile, while all this was happening in the immediate aftermath of the Rising, the British authorities had also led this very ham-fisted crackdown on republican activity in the country. They were trying to figure out, you know, who else was involved in this rebellion and what would it have looked like, basically, if everyone who was supposed to be there had actually turned up. Mm -hmm. Uh, So about 3,500 suspected rebels were swept up by the British after the rising, and they were interned in prison camps, uh, mostly in Britain. So they were sent there without without trial uh, for Mm -hmm. an undefined period. Now, probably the most famous of these camps was an old disused uh, whiskey distillery in the Welsh village of Frongoch. Uh, ironically, many of the prisoners in these camps had actually not been involved with the rebellion of, at all. Uh, but when they were in places like Frongoch, they were kind of like, it was almost like a summer camp, right? You know, they were surrounded by major <laughs> figures in the Republican movement, getting to meet them and eating with them in the morning and in the evening and discussing with them, you know, on, on a daily basis. Uh, so all of these ideas actually started swirling around in the prison camp. Yeah, yeah, of course. And the Republicans were holding lessons as well. And now they had, you know, all these people that were swept up, that were entirely innocent and uninvolved, had a grievance against Britain too, um, that, Mm. you know, could feed into their desire for independence or their sympathy with the rebels. The prisoners at Frongoch included Michael Collins and a number of other characters who would go on to play key roles in the Irish independence movement. Being cooped up in these camps together actually allowed these people an ease of communication that they hadn't had before. So before they might have lived on different sides of the country, but now all the people in Ireland who were known for their Republican views were suddenly clustered and all brought together in one place. Genius move by Britain there. In Frangach and other British prison camps, the internees would discuss strategies, they would teach each other Irish, and they would discuss the future of the independent state. And because of this, it soon gained a reputation as the University of Revolution. By 1917, most of those internees had been released. That was partly because the British authorities realised it probably wasn't a great idea keeping them all together here. Um, (laughs) Partly because loads of them had been wrongfully imprisoned anyway, right? And partly because the longer these thousands of people were being detained in prison without trial, the more outrage was swelling up back in Ireland. Uh, When they returned home, the country was completely unrecognisable from what they had left the previous year. There were crowds thronging the streets at the docks where the ships came in to welcome them. And, you know, instead of this kind of disdain of home rulers that they had experienced uh, back in 1916, now they were seeing people waving the Republican tricolour on the streets. Mm. And when they got back to their towns and villages, they discovered that the Irish volunteer movement that movement which had been formed um, uh, about seven years before to defend uh, home rule before the rising, that movement had not only been revived, but had considerably grown in size. So we have this Irish volunteer militia who are drilling on the streets once again. But for what? No one was exactly quite sure. So basically the same swelling of rebel activity that had preceded the Easter Rising 
takes off all over again in 1917, with guns being smuggled into the country and the Irish volunteers once again openly drilling in the streets of towns and villages all over the country. But this time, the rebel movement had not only gained an even greater momentum, it was considerably more unified than it had been before. The rising and its ideas had now been established in people's minds as a kind of template of revolution, and it gave all the rebels a common vision of what an independent Ireland could look like. More than this, the rebels now had a political front all to themselves. During the rising, they had been decried in newspapers quite a bit uh, in the British press as quote-unquote Sinn Féiners, Mm. Uh, even though that wasn't exactly true. At that point, during the rising, Sinn Féin was a relatively small political party, and only a few participants in the rebellion were actually associated with Sinn Féin. And by the way, this isn't exactly the same party as the Sinn Féin that we know today. At this point, uh, Sinn Féin's policies were not even particularly coherent with republicanism. Its founder, Arthur Griffiths, actually wanted to establish a dual monarchy in Britain in Ireland, which even at the time was considered a bit mad by some other nationalists. But the the press had named Sinn Féin as the political voice of the rebellion. And so Republicans flocked to join the party, essentially recreating it in their own image. At the same time, there was an ongoing collapse in support for the more moderate Irish Parliamentary Party, which had been the face of home rule. Basically, the home rule ship had sailed for good at this stage and Sinn Féin provided a natural new political home for Irish nationalists. In 1917, the rising veteran Eamon de Valera got himself elected as a Sinn Féin representative in East Clare. Mm. And that heralded the ascent of a new radical political movement that was more and more growing out of the ashes of this rebellion. Um, On his election, he made no bones about what the aim of this new party was. Sinn Féin, he announced in his victory speech, I quote, aims at securing international recognition of Ireland as an independent Irish republic. I regard my election here as a monument to the brave dead, and I believe that this is proof that they were right, that what they fought for, the complete and absolute freedom and separation from England, was the pious wish of every Irish heart. Mm. The people of Ireland are kept from expressing their views simply by the naked sword of England. England pretends it is not by the naked sword, but by the good will of the people of this country that she is here. We will draw the naked sword to make her bear her own naked sword, (laughs) to drag the hypocritical mask off her face, and to show her to the world for what she is, the accursed oppressor. Of nations. Done, done, done. Lots of naked swords going on there. <laughs> the multiplicity of naked swords just made me giggle. Uh, never that... have too many naked swords, <laughs> <are we? laughs> um, So, well, we can see an interesting point in this speech, which he's he's talking about, you know, the will of the dead and so on. You know, he, conjuring up the fallen rebels of Easter 1916. This became this very potent political weapon for republicanism. Um, and yeah. also, you know, the, the, the rhetoric is, is still quite warlike. This is a warlike time, wake of World War One, and so on. In Europe, generally, it's quite a militaristic time. Um, but de Valera also, he does seem to be quite sure in that speech that there's going to be some kind of other violent uprising, or at least willingness to use force, and that his party will be at the centre of it. Listeners, if you're thinking that the British authorities must have been worried about language like this, then you would be right. Mm. Uh, you might also be thinking, why didn't they just shut this whole thing down? You know, why are they letting um, these people kind of uh, jump around the country talking about naked swords and, you know, destroying the accursed oppressor of nations? You know, mm. <laughs> why not just shut that down? Well, if you think about what had just happened in Ireland over the past year... Westminster needed to be really, really careful about how they reacted to provocations like this. Mm. The last thing they wanted to do was to give the nationalists another martyr. And in fact, really, at this stage, they didn't even want to bring like another modicum of attention to figures like de Valera any, Mm -hmm. any more than he already had. Uh, so instead of reacting, which, you know, they were being baited to react, you can see that, instead of taking the bait, Westminster sent out spies and police to follow Irish nationalists around, you know, all the time. I should say Dublin Castle more uh, specifically, Dublin Castle, which was the, uh, the, the seat of British governance in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, you know, spies would record where nationalists were going, who they were meeting, what exactly they were saying. 
And when the British did act, it was usually a bit of a disaster. Mm. Uh, we might consider the case of Thomas Ashe. Uh, he was another Easter Rising veteran. Um, he made a political speech in County Longford in the town of uh, Balnalee. And that speech was considered so inflammatory by the police that Ash was immediately arrested for sedition. So that, you know, they took the bait, right? Mm. And once they did this, everything started to go wrong. Uh, Ash was brought to Mountjoy Prison, which is in Dublin. And there he went on hunger strike um, to demand prisoner of war status. Not the, not the last time that we would see that uh, in mm. Ireland. He ended up attracting huge press attention, of course, by doing this. The authorities tried to get him to stop. So the prison guards stripped him of his clothes and took his bed away. But then reports began to get out that, you know, the British were keeping this Easter Rising hero naked and starving to death on a stone floor. And then they ramped it up a notch and they started force feeding uh, Mm. Ash with a tube. Now, this was something that was done fairly frequently at this time. Um, it was done to the suffragettes a few years earlier, uh, famously. And honestly, the details of how this is done are too upsetting to go into, so I won't. But suffice to say that during one of these force feedings, the guards ruptured Ash's lungs and he was killed. Oh my God, that's horrific. Oh, mm. God. Uh, you can see, I suppose, why authorities had that reluctance to take the heavy hand and shut down these Sinn Féin leaders. Because, I mean, leaving aside the brutality of it, this is the worst thing that they could have done, right? It's mm. it's falling into the classic sort of anti-imperial tactic of forcing the impressor to reveal their inherently violent nature, right? Something that, mm. that much later Mahatma Gandhi was, you know, to use. It, it, it causes attention to be drawn to the tyranny of the imperial regime. It's a, a, the inherent um, nature of it as being held in place by force. And also, you know, it, it refreshes those memories of the executions of rising leaders in Kilmaine in prison just a year earlier. So it plays into rising Republican anger at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah, I suppose, you know, drawing naked swords, right? This is exactly what Eamon de Valera was kind of referring to, right? Making them show their true face. Um, meanwhile, in an attempt to smother support for Sinn Féin, the authorities spearheaded a number of crackdowns uh, just in civil life. So the Irish tricolour was banned. Mm. Uh, nationalist newspapers were shut down. Nationalist gatherings were, were forbidden. Uh, all participants in nationalist activities, um, not just the leaders, you know, people who were just going to Gaelic football matches or dances or whatever organised by the Gaelic League... All of these people started being placed under surveillance. The following year, the tension was ramped up again uh, tenfold by the developing situation on the continent. Remember, all this time, the First World War was still raging away. And by 1918, the British army was seriously short of soldiers. So the question came back of introducing conscription to Ireland. The British had sort of been reluctant to conscript Irish soldiers, like forcibly recruit the Irish before this, precisely because resistance to the idea was so, so fierce. It was a huge rallying call. Anti-conscription movements was intimately tied up with republicanism um, and they pretty much felt it would be more trouble than it was worth. But, you know, now it, it looked like conscripting Irish men into the British army against their will was going to be inevitable. So now we have a whole new groundswell of outrage against the British government and an escalation of support for Sinn Féin because of conscription. Uh, you get all these different strands of nationalism on the streets now. You have the volunteers, of course, mm. you know, you uh, have Common a Man. All of these people are going around, you know, holding rallies against conscription. Uh, meanwhile, we have a general strike being called with workers up and down the country abandoning train stations, munitions factories, shipyards. And, you know, this was really serious when you remember that this was right in the middle of a world war. You know, like Britain cannot mm-hmm. afford for train stations and munitions factories not to be functional right now. I, and in a bit of a game changer move, the Catholic Church also came out against conscription. And once the Catholic Church had come out against conscription, that gave license to the more respectable middle classes to throw their support behind the um, anti-conscription movement and also to throw their support behind the independence movement at the same time. So now the British started to absolutely panic. There was no more time to hang back anymore with these nationalist agitators. All public meetings in Ireland were now banned and the authorities suddenly arrested about 150 major figures in Sinn Féin during a midnight swoop operation and they sent them to internment camps. The British claimed that these leaders had been involved in a secret plot with Germany, but everybody knew that that wasn't true. 
Once again, this was an attempt to quash the Irish nationalist movement, along with the anti-conscription movement, quickly and brutally, and once again, it completely backfired. Yeah, the act of banning public gatherings in Ireland actually ended up offering Irish nationalists a huge opportunity. Hmm. So this was a moment where they realised that they could publicly demonstrate quite how much support Sinn Féin now enjoyed across the country. So not only did people not respect the bans, but the Gaelic Athletic Association, the GAA, this mm. this organization, the sports organization that had been founded as part of the Gaelic revival, they organized a massive series of games, of, you know, Gaelic games to take place on the same day during the ban. And they mm. called this day Gaelic Sunday. So on the 4th of August, uh, 1918, at exactly 3 p.m., the GAA held a match in every single parish in Ireland. Mm. An estimated 54,000 players participated in these games and about 100,000 came out to watch. And of course, it was impossible for the authorities to shut this all down. You know, it was impossible. Um, right. So instead, what you ended up with was this hugely visible statement, visible to people in the tiniest villages across the country, asserting that... We don't have to do what the British tell us to do. Mm. If we all just ignore them and their rules, if we all do it, <laughs> logistically, they can't stop all of us. Mm. And so this was an incredibly significant indication, I think, for Irish people and for Westminster, that the Irish rebel movement had just grown too big now. It was it had simply grown too big to be kept under control. Right. And it's so potent, you know, symbolically, this action of doing, you know, Irish sports peaceful, but mm. also an expression of, you know, of Irishness, uh, of identity. And, and so accordingly, within a few months, the British government realised that in Ireland, it would simply be impossible to force through conscription. And they backed down from the plan. This was a major boon for Sinn Féin. Remember, some 200,000 Irish recruits had already gone to fight in World War One, and about a quarter of those would never come home. There were families all over Ireland who were in the throes of grief. And even among those who wanted to support the British army in World War One, disillusionment and fatigue was at this point setting in. So the successful overturning of conscription was a huge thing. You know, for some families, this was a question of whether or not they were going to lose another son. Then comes the infamous general election of 1918. Mm -hmm. uh, You've probably heard us talk about this before on the podcast, guys, because it is so consequential. This was an extraordinary election in loads of ways. It was the first election to take place after this tentative establishment of women's suffrage in the UK. So all women over the age of 30 were now able to vote for the first time. It would mm. be another few years before that age limit was lowered. And at the same time, it was the first time that all men over the age of 21 could now vote, regardless of the property or um, wealth status. And that was basically seen at the point as something that these men had earned after fighting in the war. So this was a moment for Sinn Féin to strike. In their manifesto, they promised that if they were elected, they would break away from the United Kingdom and establish an independent Irish Republic. And the results of that election have gone down in history. The Irish Parliamentary Party, uh, still standing on its platform of home rule, was almost completely obliterated. Instead, Sinn Féin swept the board across the country, winning a majority in 73 of the 101 seats in the country. Meanwhile, the Ulster Unionist Party kept a firm grip on the north, winning a majority in the 22 predominantly Protestant constituencies of Ulster. So Irish politics were now dramatically polarised, with the vast majority of the country calling for immediate independence from British rule and one loyalist region that was adamantly opposed to any separation from the Union. I think there is a really interesting class dimension to this election as well, which is often forgotten. Because republicanism and unionism didn't just differ in their attitudes to the Union with Britain, mm. they were also very much at odds in terms of class politics. Um, republicanism was this very young movement, like literally and figuratively. It, it styled itself as modern and forward-looking, but also as dangerous, you know, and uh, as exciting. It was built on these ideas of completely overturning established institutions and turning its back on these monoliths of monarchy and empire. 
Unionism, by definition, was clinging to an older, safer, more familiar version of the world, uh, which was beginning to fall apart even before the outbreak of World War One. So this kind of clinging to conservatism itself was mm. something that was happening, you know, independently of this constitutional question. I see. Like this, you know, this old world, this was a world of ordered society, you know, with, with a class system that was founded on Protestant supremacy and which was fundamentally dependent on Britain, not just culturally, but politically and socially. So, like, if you look at the main figures in these respective movements, um, Michael Collins, for instance, in 1918, Michael Collins was only 28 years old, you know, mm -hmm. and he was a farmer's son and he had worked as a postal worker. De, De Valero was only 35 and he had, as we discussed in a previous episode, he had been born in a, in a New York orphanage hospital. Mm -hmm. Then you have people like Constance Mark Markovich, who was this, you know, aristocrat turned radical socialist who had swapped in her ball gowns for military trousers and firearms. And at the time of the election, all three of them had either recently been or still were sitting in British prisons. Mm. Like people like this had never, ever in history been elected to a British parliament. You know, right. This was so far away from, from what, you know, everything had been until just a year previously. And if you think about then the contrast that those people and that movement must have made with Edward Carson. Edward Carson was the main figure of unionism in Ireland at that point. Uh, he was 64 in 1918. He was part of the old guard establishment. You know, his family hailed from the old Anglican elite in Dublin. He was a barrister. He was an attorney general. And later on, he became a first lord of the admiralty, which basically made him political head of the British Navy. Mm. Uh, Carson, you know, represented social conservatism in a rapidly changing world. Actually, interestingly, back in 1895, Edward Carson was the barrister who had prosecuted Oscar Wilde during his infamous libel trial. Uh, so back then, Carson had already become famous for, like, citing passages of Wilde's literature in disgust, you know, oh, and, you know, accusing him of moral depravity and talking about, you know, this, you know, moral, moral um, void of the modern world. Wow. So... If you sit back and consider that this was a general election where working class men and women over 30 could vote for the very first time, you can see that this is a certain kind of social revolution as well as a constitutional revolution. You have this groundswell in Ireland for the overthrow of an old landed elite. And then you see unionism clinging to that same old conservative establishment as a kind of vestige of a normality that's slipping away from their fingers all over the world. It's really fascinating to hear you put together the strands like that. And we see how old some of the sort of characteristics of different political movements are in Ireland, you know, like the tendency of unionism to be paired with social conservatism and republicanism to have this more radical streak in different ways is, you know, anti-establishment streak. That's fascinating to hear. And also, mm. you know, I was thinking about the the strength of the anti-conscription movement and how key that was, um, you know, to the popular movement for independence. And it, again, that rejection of militarism and rejection of involvement in European wars, it's such an old trend and so integral to Irish politics. I think that goes to a long way in explaining why Ireland is different when it comes to the idea of militaries and military alignments up to the current day. Um, it differs so much. It's, it's unique compared to the rest of, you know, other EU countries and so on. It's fascinating. Also to, interesting to imagine Eamon de Valera um, being a character in his 30s because, <laughs> I mean, especially when we listen to the speeches he was making, I just I just picture him as this, you know, elder statesman figure, even though, you know, I, I struggle to imagine him being a young man. I know. Yeah, that's, um, that's, I had the exact same reaction because there's at one point, uh, during the research for this episode that I kind of said to myself, hold on, like, what age are these people? And I just kind of went to like, looked at their birth date and I kind of stared at my computer screen like a gog for a, a good moment yeah. when I realized that Eamon de Valera was 35 because was like, <laughs> Eamon de Valera was never 35. <laughs> he was born about 57, but. <laughs> Anyway, uh, whatever the case, uh, Sinn Féin took this massive voting majority as a democratic mandate um, to go ahead with their manifesto promises and to start the process of setting up an independent Irish state. On the 21st of January 1919, the remaining leaders of Sinn Féin came together in the mayoral residence in Dublin and officially ratified the proclamation of the Irish Republic from 1916. 
So just to set the scene here, everyone in Dublin, including the British authorities, knew that this was happening. And the streets were thronged with people cheering and waving the Irish tricolour. All elected Irish MPs were invited, by the way, including the 22 Unionist representatives and the six Irish parliamentary representatives. But they either ignored the invitation or they declined to attend. It's really worthwhile setting the scene here because it's really quite extraordinary. So the mayor's residence in Dublin is called the Mansion House and it's located on Dawson Street, just north of Stevens Green. Now, the mayor at this stage was himself a Sinn Féin supporter, so he was happy enough to let these guys use his house. Um, the Mansion House, um, some listeners might know it, actually. It's a grand old 18th century building. And at the rear, there is a big domed hall, which is still mm. there. It's called the Round Room. And it was originally built to receive King George IV back in 1820. Now, you have all these elected Sinn Féin representatives making their way through Dublin to meet here. And the streets all around them are completely thronged with people waving Irish tricolours or people who are just curious to see what's going on. And there's this huge sense of foreboding. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean T. O'Kelly, who would go on to become President of Ireland later, uh, he wrote about that day at a later date. He, he wrote, I quote, The assembling at the new Irish Parliament was awaited with keenest excitement everywhere. The big question on the lips of everyone these days was, what would happen? Would the British try to prevent the meeting? Would they use force to do so? In the event no attack happened, the British authorities surveyed the scene carefully, but they were keenly aware that any intervention was only going to draw even more attention to the gathering and would probably just lose them even more support. Besides, the area was packed with civilians as well as a horde of international journalists, particularly from America, who were scrambling to get on the story of what on earth was going on here in Dublin. A British crackdown on peaceful crowds would have been strategically unwise. The British strategy instead was just to let all of this burn out by itself. After all, you can see, you know, where that strategy came from. These guys didn't have any money. You know, they they had no international recognition and they had no control over the police or the army. So, you know, what were they going to do? They could meet together and be a government all they wanted. It wasn't going to get them very far. Right. And of course, what we're talking about is unprecedented. I mean, we can now see from our vantage points that, you know, lots of countries can go independence. But at the time... This was incredibly new and Britain was like the greatest empire in the face of the earth. So the British Mm. standpoint is basically, you know, let them play their little games of independence and eventually we'll intervene if we need to. Exactly. So in March, the Sinn Féin representatives to the Mansion House, amid roaring applause, they took their seats in the round room for the first session of what they called Dáil Éireann. And that simply means the Assembly of Ireland. So let's take a look at some of the key players from this first doll. So this very first meeting formed a temporary cabinet since so many Sinn Féin representatives, including Eamon de Valera, who was president of the Sinn Féin party, were still locked up in British prisons. It was headed instead by Brua, a veteran of the Easter Rising. The ministry was reformed and expanded a few months later. Uh, Michael Collins, who had really come to prominence in the independence movement since his release from Franguk, uh, he took on the role of Secretary of Finance. Mm. Uh, He was this very dashing, handsome young guy. Like we said, he was only 28. And people saw him as very much one of the rising stars of uh, Irish politics at this point. Now, since this whole organization was, you know, effectively illegal, not explicitly illegal quite yet, but effectively, being Minister of Finance meant that you were going to have to, like, put the money somewhere, right? (laughs) So Mm. Michael Collins was presiding over, like, stashing away gold bars under floorboards, you know, (laughs) like old disused (laughs) houses and, like, hiding jewels and cash in people's basement and attics, you know, it's completely wild. Um, that's, you know, what the Minister of Finance of the Dáil was doing. Uh, but reportedly, <laughs> like, he did really well, considering the circumstances, and he raised loads of money, um, actually. Constance Markovic uh, came at this point, one of the first women in the world to hold a cabinet position, uh, when she took on the position as Secretary for Labour. That's a role that would suit her down to the ground, considering her previous involvement with the Irish Citizen Army, uh, which was formed to protect uh, social rights, so very deep roots in the labour movement. She was about 50 years of age when she took her seat in the Dáil, and she'd just been released from Holloway Prison in England. In the 1918 election, of course, Markovic had just become the first woman to have ever been elected to the UK Parliament. 
which is something that has long been played down in British history books. It's really interesting. Um, there's this other woman who, there's this other woman who was elected to the parliament the next year. Uh, her name is Nancy Astor. And that's usually the name that you'll hear connected with the first woman in Westminster, you know, if that's ever brought up. Mm. Like there was a centenary in 2019 to celebrate Nancy Astor and she was given a statue and ceremonies and lots of media coverage. And the whole time, the UK media kept referring to her when they remembered to do so as, quote, the first woman seated in Parliament instead <laughs> of the first woman elected to Parliament. Um, that was to try and get around the fact that, you know, she was the second woman elected, right? Because it's pretty hard to imagine, you know, a centenary of Constance Markovitch, you know, happening, happening in Westminster or statues of her going up outside the British Parliament. Yeah, clearly Markovitch... Um something of an awkward fit, you know, for Britain in terms of British parliamentary history. Um, and of course, there's the fact that women in, in general have been slow to be recognised in terms of their early political um, contributions. Um, I think we should note that that goes for Ireland as well. You know, for example, mm. whereas the male revolutionary leaders had streets and train stations named after them, Markovic got a council swimming pool, uh, which is actually slated to be demolished. You know, something mm. that really erases the absolutely pivotal role that she had in this period of politics. Like at the time, she was a figure with mass popular support. Like there's actually a film, there's old Pathé footage of her return to Dublin after she was released from prison, as you mentioned, following the Easter Rising. And like, if you look at the crowds, like the thickness of them, you know, there is literally no extra room on the streets. It's just a sea of heads. It looks like hundreds of thousands of people with Markovic held aloft in the centre. So she was no way contingent as a female figure. Mm. You know, she was a very central leader. We might share a link to that footage in the show notes. Indeed, right. So next up, we had Owen McNeil, who was co-founder of the Gaelic League. He was elected minister for industry. He was involved in founding the Irish Volunteers as well back in 1913. Uh, but unlike most of the cabinet, Owen McNeil hadn't actually taken part in the 1916 Rising. Uh, he was the one, famously, who had called it for it to be postponed and had his orders ignored. But created a lot of confusion <laughs> in the meantime. Yeah. <laughs> You can listen back to our Rising episode if you want to hear about that. Yeah. Um, Arthur Griffith, who was founder of Sinn Féin back in its dual monarchy days, uh, he was elected Secretary for Home Affairs. And uh, George Noble Plunkett, uh, who was father of Joseph Plunkett, who had died in the Rising, he became Secretary for Foreign Affairs. Mm. He was a museum curator and he was an intellectual, so he would have spoken a lot of languages and uh, been well suited for that role. Hmm. It's The Plunkett family are so interesting. You know, that they were actually related to Sir Henry Curzon Plunkett, who had been one of the leading mm. figures of Irish unionism, but he'd changed his mind and supported Home Rule back in 1912 when he saw that the alternative would be the partition of the island. Mm, yeah, yeah, loads of interesting stuff there. Um, in January 1919, however, the doll had a problem. The leader of Sinn Féin, like we mentioned, was Eamon de Valera. And like we also mentioned, Eamon de Valera was being held in prison in Lincoln Jail at this point. Mm. In fact, Michael Collins was absent from the first session of the doll because they were working on a way at that very moment to break de Valera out of jail and to bring him <laughs> back to Ireland to like take his place at the head of this government. Mm. And amazingly, that's exactly what they did. Um, and they used this completely madcap plan. So while he was in prison... De Valera volunteered to help the chaplain at mass. Mm. And when the chaplain's back was turned, he Dev would take the keys, the prison keys, and press them into one of the altar candles what? and then put them back where he got them. And so he would be making wax molds of the keys in the candles. Okay. And he pocketed the candles and he got another prisoner to draw the exact same shape of the mold onto a Christmas card. I mean, there's pictures of these Christmas cards you can find online and really look them up because there's something else. It's just this like innocent scene and then there's this huge drawing of a key in the middle that's like dressed up as something else. Um, It's really something else. So that Christmas card would be sent out to another member of Sinn Féin who was on the outside and they would use the trace of the mould from the candle to make a copy of the key. Mm. And they would smuggle a new key back into the prison inside a Christmas cake. So this, remember, is all happening in January. It's just a few weeks after Christmas. It actually took a few tries to get this right. I wonder, did the prison guards wonder about all the Christmas cakes? I don't know. But like, in the end, they finally got the key right. 
and Dev put a pair of socks over his shoes and he just turned the key and walked out of the prison. Wow. Um, and he met Michael Collins outside who was waiting with a taxi and they just hopped on the taxi <laughs> and they were never seen again. <laughs> it's, it's something else. A few weeks later, De Valera just shows up in Ireland to the horror of the British authorities in Westminster and in Dublin Castle and he parades into, you know, the Parliament triumphantly to take his place amid roaring crowds as the president of Dáil Éireann. Gosh. Fate accompanied. Um, I, you know, back on that first day that we were talking about in the round room, the atmosphere was reportedly electric. Moira Comerford, who was a major figure in the women's uh, movement, come in the man, she recorded in her memoirs the feeling that, quote, never was the past so near or the present so brave or the future so full of hope. We did see Cahill Bruja presiding and we repeated the words of the declaration after him and we felt we had burned our boats now. There was no going back. There was a balcony running around the periphery which was packed with onlookers as the Sinn Féin government adopted a formal declaration of independence. This declaration read as follows. At the threshold of a new era in history, the Irish electorate has, in the general election of December 1918, seized the first occasion to declare by an overwhelming majority its firm allegiance to the Irish Republic. Now, therefore, we, the elected representatives of the ancient Irish people in national parliament assembled, do in the name of the Irish nation ratify the establishment of the Irish Republic and pledge ourselves and our people to make this declaration effective by every means at our command. We ordain that the elected representatives of the Irish people alone have the power to make laws binding on the people of Ireland and that the Irish Parliament is the only Parliament to which that people will give its allegiance. We solemnly declare foreign government in Ireland to be an invasion of our national right, which we will never tolerate, and we demand the evacuation of our country by the English garrison. We claim for our national independence the recognition and support of every free nation in the world, and we proclaim that independence to be a condition precedent to international peace hereafter. The doll, by the way, was fully aware that the British were not going to take this Declaration of Independence seriously. And that is why their strategy was pretty much to bypass Britain Mm -hmm. completely and instead to focus on everyone else, to get the rest of the world to recognise the Irish Republic Mm -hmm. instead. So along with the Declaration of Independence, they published a uh, message to the nations of the world. And they published this in Irish, in English and in French, like a diplomatic document. Mm -hmm. Um, And they basically argued in this document that Ireland's freedom was in the interest of all of Europe. So this is really interesting. Mm. Here's one paragraph, for instance, so you can get an idea. Internationally, Ireland is the gateway of the Atlantic. Ireland is the last outpost of Europe towards the West. Ireland is the point upon which great trade routes between East and West converge. Her independence is demanded by the freedom of the seas. Her great harbours must be open to all nations instead of being the monopoly of England. Today, these harbours are empty and idle solely because English policy is determined to retain Ireland as a barren bulwark for English aggrandizement and the unique geographical position of this island, far from being a benefit and safeguard to Europe and America, is subjected to the purposes of England's policy of world domination." Wow, that is so interesting. And again, like that presages like so, so much of Ireland's self-image in, you know, this, in this, in the century to come, the way that it built itself as, you know, a hub of international trade. (laughs) So another version of this sentiment was printed as well in the form of a long poem, which was published and distributed around Europe. It's, It's so fascinating to see how aware they were of the importance of international opinion you know nowadays Mm. like we see Volodymyr Zelensky the president of Ukraine using every occasion he can to address international crowds um, and and events Mm. you know to to make Ukraine's case internationally he sees that as his main job and you know there's been so much talk about you know how innovative it is and how new but also you know this is we can see this this tactic is old you know how much Ireland has used this as well Mm. I suppose that you know winning the winning the sympathy, you know, kind of winning the information war, that's that's one way in which weaker nations in a conflict can 
with the smaller nations, they can they can use that as an advantage against a larger one if they can communicate their case yeah. better. Um, so let's take a look at this poem. You know, it's even more provocative in a way in that it seems directed primarily at other British colonies. You can imagine really how this must have sounded to someone reading, say, in India or in Africa, you know, these ostensible citizens of Britain, you know, telling them to beware of British rule and using British actions in Ireland as an example of why the UK can't be trusted. So here's one extract. Yet first know Ireland's message unto man. While Ireland is in chains, no race on earth is safe because the self-same men who rule your destinies, O oh, men who were trained in fraud within our shores to mock at liberty, if you would free the world, free Ireland first. We are the link between the old and the new. We guard the ocean's paths, Atlantic's key. Our place is in all Europe's polity, not the mere handmaid of the English Isle. Set the seas free, no flag must rule the waves. Mankind is one with equal rights to sail. You could write a, a, a 25 theses, I think, on that one paragraph alone. Absolutely. There's so much to say about it. And what you just said about uh, smaller nations winning the information war yeah. is actually, yeah, that's such such an interesting point in this context. And also here in, in this little poem, you can also see how aware Ireland are of its trump cards. Yeah. They have a few little trump cards and they're so, so aware of them. This idea of like... Ireland being the Atlantic's key, guarding the ocean's yeah. paths, you know. This, of course, came up in World War II, if you listen to our neutrality episode. Mm. And they're already so aware of this in 1918 or 1919. Um, also, this sense, again, of them saying, we are the link between the old and the new. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Like, you know, World War I itself is being framed as so central to the way Ireland is pursuing its independence. There is this keen sense of awareness that Europe is entering an increasingly post-imperial age. Mm. And that Irish independence is an obvious step forward. It's part and parcel of the new post-war yes. modern world. Appropriately then, the Dáil sent a delegation to Paris in 1919 to try and represent the Irish Republic at the Versailles post-war peace conference. And of course, everyone at this conference was like, who are these guys? But regardless, they went around lobbying and lobbying until all the other delegates would hear their case for why Ireland should be represented as an independent nation. I don't think they ever managed to get into the conference itself, mm. uh, but they knew that their aggressive lobbying would be enough to catch the attention of, you know, all these world leaders who were all in the one place. Like, this is pretty remarkable. Like, you have this band of ostensibly British citizens mm. marching around Paris embassies and parties, you know, talking with international diplomats with the American president and stuff, explaining how actually they had formed an independent nation, mm. you know, like just, just a little while ago. And across the room at the same time, you have the actual British delegates, you know, who have to try and explain to everyone what the hell is going on in their country, you know? Yeah, of course, the delegation in Europe, I mean, I think this is one of the times where having a big diaspora comes in handy, you know, because the amount of explaining mm. you have to do is reduced. Uh, particularly in the US. But, and of course, the delegation in Europe was nothing compared to the impact of de Valera when he travelled to the United States itself to drum up support for the Dáil. He went on this mammoth tour across the country from New York to San Francisco, holding these huge rallies in practically every major city on the way and attracting tens of thousands of people to hear him speak. Just think about the impact this must have had on Irish Americans. Like this is 1920. It's not even 70 years since the end of the famine in Ireland. And a lot of those people who had come to hear de Valera speak were first or second generation immigrants who had left a country in total ruin and oppression. And here you have this half American, half Irish de Valera standing up among them and telling them that Ireland had declared its independence. Like It must have been exhilarating for a lot of those people. Yeah, because, you know, there were just so many Irish Americans in the USA at this stage. So this was also a phenomenon that the US government couldn't ignore, mm. and Britain knew that. Uh, so despite Britain's fairly wise strategy to to themselves ignore mm. this silly self-proclaimed government and let it burn itself out and all that, the doll had now managed to get the whole world, pretty much, mm. and most importantly, America, talking about the increasingly obvious fact that the Irish had overthrown British rule. <laughs> All this time, uh, tensions on the ground in Ireland were ramping up. We mentioned earlier that the Irish volunteers had reformed after the Easter Rising. 
These guys were originally set up back in 1913 to defend home rule at a time when it looked like unionist militias might initiate a civil war to prevent Ireland getting self-government. And by 1914, they had counted about 200,000 recruits. Many of those recruits had fought in the Easter Rising of 1916. And now in 1919, they were turning their allegiance to Dáil Éireann. This was all a bit chaotic, honestly. Um, the volunteers had existed for seven years already before the Dáil came into being, and it wasn't necessarily a given that this huge militia would do what the Dáil leaders told it to. You know, they were an in independent organisation and they were under no obligation to submit to the orders of the rebel government. But strategically, the volunteers decided they were stronger if they worked together. So they threw their support officially behind the Dáil while maintaining quite a strong grip on their own military actions. So now, effectively, the Dáil has a ready-made army and a fairly substantial army mm. at that. Uh, and from this point on, you begin to stop hearing the militia referred to as the Irish Volunteers, and instead they are increasingly referred to as the Irish Republican Army, or the IRA. Um, for the sake of clarity, we'll refer to them as the IRA from now on in this episode. And for listeners, just to another point of clarity, remember this isn't the same uh, as the provisional IRA that acted in the North in the 60s. Often in Irish history, we distinguish this original IRA as the old IRA. So this is growing out of the Irish volunteers as the army for the Dáil. On the 31st of January 1919, just 10 days after the first session of the Dáil, the official volunteer newspaper on Togluk printed the following statement. The principal means at the command of the Irish people is the army of Ireland, and that army will be true to its trust. If they are called on to shed their blood in defence of the newborn republic, they will not shrink from the sacrifice. Dáil Éireann, in its message to the free nations, further declares that the state of war can never be ended until the English military invader evacuates our country, a fact that had been recognised and acted on by the volunteers almost since their inception. The state of war which is thus declared to exist justifies Irish volunteers in treating the armed forces of the enemy, whether soldiers or policemen, exactly as a national army would treat the members of an invading army. Every volunteer is entitled morally and legally when in the execution of his military duties to use all legitimate methods of warfare against the soldiers and policemen of the English usurpers and to slay them if it is necessary to do so in order to overcome their resistance. Okay, right. So that is from the Volunteers, the IRA newspaper, right, which had existed for years before any of this happened. So you can see that they are chomping at the bit mm -hmm. here uh, to get to war. Very much so because the doll itself, despite what Antogluk said there, the doll didn't actually declare war mm -hmm. officially um, at all. Um, it's these guys who are essentially kind of reading into the doll's actions as a declaration of war. Mm. Um, and now that the volunteers kind of decided to take action, as we'll see, the doll didn't really have any choice, right, but to go along with them. Mm. Because this is, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, this is their army. This is their only force, right? I think, actually, you know, and keeping this in mind as, as we go on to further uh, episodes on this, that the IRA, as it existed at this point, really get to the core of what was going on in the Irish War of Independence. Mm. Because these were people who had been mainly, uh, at this stage, recruited locally. These were people who had joined up, you know, in little towns and villages all over the country. And that on not only gave them this incredibly ubiquitous presence in the country, but it intimately tied them to the communities they came from across Ireland. When you look at this history, there is this overwhelming sense of how collective this war was, mm -hmm. how collective this uprising was, and how it kind of reeled in ordinary people from all walks of life. You know, that, that sense of ubiquity as well was made even more intense by the fact that women, as well as men, were just so actively involved in these politics. That fact lent the movement a sense of very solid, cohesive community support, um, you know, which was unusual for the time and which gave the whole thing an amazing sense of momentum. It's really interesting to hear how they describe the police um, as as the occupying force. And it needs to be seen mm. as in the context of what we mentioned, which is that the police were surveilling all the nationalist movements. They were, you know, they were very mm. much actively policing they were they were they were militarized it was a military militarized police force it was very much in the colonial mode 
Um, but it also, you know, this sets down traditions that continue even to the present day in Republican circles in terms of how, you know, the state forces are viewed and treated um, and the sort of, you know, the, mm. the self-conception and theory of what they're doing. Um, remember, you know, the, these countrywide frameworks and networks that you've been describing, Tim, these had upheld the national momentum across the country for decades. Like these organizations like the GAA, uh, Common Naman, the women's group, or the Gaelic League, they'd created very close-knit networks that extended into practically every walk, walk of life. Mm, yeah, and I think this is something that the British actually really underestimated. Just the extent to which the majority of Irish people had already really conceived of themselves as independent in like loads of different dimensions, right? Mm. Culturally, politically, socially, the whole shebang. You know, for many people, the doll didn't seem like some radical new experiment. For many people, it made perfect sense. It was just like going back to normality. Mm. Um, you know, they had been living here in their minds for a while. It, it certainly made a lot more sense to ordinary people in Ireland than, you know, continuing the status quo in this union which had ignored them and neglected them and failed so many of them for so long. Yeah, I, I would say that the self-government is, is is definitely true. Now, then when it comes to the means of asserting independence and particularly that decision about military force, that was something that was controversial at the time and remains to this day mm. a subject of political debate um, in Ireland in terms of, you know, how how should that legacy be treated whether it's something to be celebrated or if we need to take a nuanced view about it. Um, but it is that that sort of the how of, how, you know, the means of becoming independent that was and remains contentious. Um, so in the round room on the 21st of January, the doll had sent out a peaceful message of independence to the world. And that very same day, halfway across the country, the first shots of the War of Independence were fired. In the townland of Solo Headbeg in County Tipperary, two RIC, that's Royal Irish Constabulary, officers were ambushed and murdered by the IRA. A slew of other attacks soon followed on the official police force. For lots of people in the nationalist movement, some kind of violence was inevitable. And some, like we saw there uh, in the declaration from the volunteers, were itching right, to stage some kind of new rising against the establishment. As tensions mounted with the police, the doll was a bit more coy about all this. Mm. You know, the doll had been taking a political route rather than jumping straight to violence. It was being careful and it deployed the old nationalist strategy of boycotting. The doll called on everyone in Ireland to ostracise the police and their families. Mm. And the effect of this was to make policing in Ireland practically impossible. Boycotting had developed quite a bit from back in the 1880s mm. when it was invented by Irish nationalists. So nobody would speak to the police. Nobody would even look at them, you know, or serve them in a shop or a pub. Um, across the country, police could hardly live in the community, let alone, you know, effectively patrol it. Um, reportedly, sometimes the RIC officers actually had to hold shopkeepers up at gunpoint Gosh. just so that they could buy their weekly grocery shopping um, because nobody would sell it to them otherwise. Gosh. It's insane. Yeah, this has an old tradition as well. Like this was a problem going back a long time. Like they had issues like the mm. juries wouldn't convict in Ireland, for example, because they tended to sympathize with whoever was on trial and see the whole apparatus of law enforcement as, you know, the enemy. <laughs> so they were just to quit. But mm. um Meanwhile, uh, trade unions also began to resist the authority of the police as well, uh, reviving the iconic industrial strikes of Jim Larkin that we've spoken about before. In April 1919, for example, the British had declared a special military area in the city of Limerick, which basically meant that public gatherings were banned and everyone who wanted to enter or leave the city had to show a special RIC permit. Instead of following orders, the workers of Limerick declared a general strike, pretty much shut the whole city down. They came up uh, with their own council to govern the city that became known as the Limerick Soviet and even printed their own money and their own travel permits. That strike only lasted for about two weeks, but it's a good example of how volatile Ireland was becoming with, with each day that passed and also how intimately bound up with international uh, radical trends, um, you know, this, these politics in Ireland was. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, boycotting like this went on for years, by the way. Uh, in 1920, railway workers went on a munitions strike for about six months. That meant that they refused to transport British soldiers or to transport British weapons around Ireland, which meant that it was impossible to arm the authorities against rebel forces mm. in a lot of the country. Um, in many cases, the rail lines were shut down completely. The British uh, authorities just didn't command respect in the country anymore. And once that had become established in the minds of ordinary people, the whole framework of British rule of law began to collapse. Yeah, for the police especially, the situation became unworkable. Uh, rebel support was so ingrained around the country, and anyone you might talk to, no matter how innocent, you know, likely had rebel connections somehow. So even just existing as a policeman meant that you were surrounded, you know, by the eyes and the ears of the IRA wherever you went. So policemen in Ireland just began to abandon their posts, um, and they started to resign in massive numbers. Others weren't given much of a choice, of course. Uh, in April 1920, um, the IRA burned out 400 police barracks across the country. It's important to remember as well that a lot of those police, you know, many of them were just ordinary Irishmen and many of them mm. were Catholic. Um, this was a good job, you know, a rare good job at a time in a very poor country, right? And mm. they wanted to look after their families. They didn't necessarily have a burning passion for the defence of the British Empire. Um, and most of them actually had sympathy for the rebels or they might have had rebels in their own family. Um, but now this situation, practically all of the countrymen had turned against them. A lot of them were quick to understand that the game was up. And within that year, uh, what you get is whole swathes of the country that simply don't have police forces anymore. And the IRA took over complete control. Eventually, the doll actually set up its own police force. The Irish Republican Police. Huh. Uh, this was, there's very few of them apparently, but it was mainly to uh, go hand in hand with the new system of Republican courts, which is really interesting. Uh, mm. So people stopped interacting with the British legal system. Instead, they turned to this national framework of district and circuit courts that had been you know, set up by the doll. This also meant, by the way, that sentences handed down by the official British court system were just ignored. Pr prisoners mm. just walked away from the stand. Judges just abandoned, you know, in their empty halls, right? A lot of this was fairly chaotic, but considering the circumstances, it actually functioned surprisingly well. And that was, you know, in a way, I suppose, because practically everyone outside of Ulster was kind of on board by now, um, mm. you know, by later on in 1919. Like, even people who had been sceptical of all this couldn't really ignore the fact that, you know, the British had no authority anymore uh, in Ireland. Like, their their authority had completely collapsed, and Dáil Éireann was fully functioning now, whether anyone liked it or not, as the government of Ireland. Striking closest to Britain's heart was tax, which this is the burning issue. Along with police barracks, the IRA burned down hundreds of tax offices with official tax collectors abandoning their posts as quickly as the IRC had abandoned theirs. Instead, the Irish began now paying taxes to the doll, which not only represented the loss of millions per annum to the British government, like the tax income of an entire constituent nation. But it also meant that in practical terms, as well as symbolically, the Irish Republic, which Westminster had been prepared to ignore until it went away, was now financing itself like an independent state. At the same time, thanks largely to de Valera, money was flowing in staggering amounts from Irish Americans in the United States to fund and support the Dáil. All this time, the British government was brutally suppressing the press, the media in Ireland. They only allowed pro-unionist stories to be reported in the newspapers. But, kind of ironically, the reality of what was going on began to seep into the British press, where there were no such um, curbs, right? Um, on the 2nd of January 1920, the London Times reported that, I quote, Sinn Féin is effectively taking over the executive and judicial functions of government. It has become the de facto government in three quarters of Ireland and virtually possesses treaty powers. In the following week, that same newspaper wrote, In their long-sustained effort to overthrow the power of Sinn Féin, the government have suffered a cumulative series of reverses. This is the British government. Sinn Féin has never been stronger than it is today. A few weeks later, the London Daily Herald concluded that, I quote, the Irish will not allow themselves to be ruled by England. They will prefer the alternative of death. Extremely striking quotes. 
In, in mm. Westminster, there couldn't have been a darker cloud over the whole Irish question. The entire United Kingdom was being pretty humiliated publicly and intentionally on the international stage. This small band of rebels that composed the Dáil, half of whom they might easily have executed uh, after the Easter Rising, had against all odds, and starting with practically no financial or political support, had succeeded in completely throwing off the shackles of the British Empire within a country that was not only Britain's oldest imperial possession, but had for over 100 years been actually part of the UK. Uh, over 30 years, practically every strategy Britain had deployed in Ireland had pretty much backfired. Mm. Appeasement, constructive investment, brutal suppression, or ignoring the situation. Like, all of them, all of these strategies only seemed to make the rebel cause stronger. So what on earth were they supposed to do with this? Well, mm. listeners may remember from previous episodes that at this point in history, the Secretary of State for War was none other than Winston Churchill. For Churchill, there was no question of allowing this revolutionary republic to continue undermining the British Empire. Nor, however, was there any question of openly declaring civil war in what he would have seen as the United Kingdom. Instead, Churchill was going to crush the Irish for once and for all, by sending in one of the most reviled British militias of the 20th century, the Black and Tans. And that, my friends, is for our next episode. Oh, Tim, you're really leaving us hanging. Um, okay, <laughs> listeners, you heard him. You'll have to tune in next time to find out the next chapter of how the Irish War of Independence unfolds with the notorious Black and Tans arriving on the scene. Um, until then, you can, of course, check out Patreon, where we'll continue this discussion um, in a half pint, um, a kind of debrief. Uh, so if you are hungry for more, you can sign up today at patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport and help support the podcast. Until then, slán everyone. Slán. <laughs>